Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. So why do we do it? We do it because we love the rice. It's part of our it's part of our heritage, our legacy, and besides that, it's just damn good rice. <laughs> yeah, it is. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. Today on Point of Origin, rice and resilience, Asia to California, Africa to South Carolina. From the Oriza glabarima of West Africa to the Oriza sativa in Eastern Asia, humans across worlds and lifetimes are all bound to the story of rice. Our next guest is a very good friend of mine, Jasmine Lee, who is a writer and a cook based in Queens, but for this particular story, she is in California. Jasmine, thank you for joining us today on Point of Origin podcast. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Jasmine, um, for your forthcoming story in Whetstone, you visited a really remarkable farm in California called Coda Farms, a company that has been producing and harvesting Japanese rice for many, many years. Can you tell us about uh, this farm and what you observed when you went? Yeah. So I visited Robin Coda, who is one of the co-owners of Coda Farms with her brother, Ross. I'm sitting here with Robin Coda. Hi, Robin. Hello, Jasmine. So I am Sansei, Japanese-American, third generation, born and raised in California, as were my parents. And like a lot of immigrants to California, they, my, my grandparents eventually came around to agriculture. And so Coda Farms is located in South Dos Palos in the Central Valley in California. Which is based in the southwest corner of Merced County in the Central Valley. 
of California. Central Valley and California encompasses sort of paradoxically the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley. The geographical division between those two is literally the Sacramento River and the Delta area. So the area we are in is the San Joaquin Valley. I had a really just amazing time hanging out with Robin. You know, we we talked about a lot of things. We got into the sort of like what the land looked like when her grandfather arrived and essentially like why her family settled in the Central Valley as opposed to up in the Sacramento region where really that is where the heart of, you know, rice growing is Mm -hmm. on the West Coast. But Robin is such an amazing person. <laughs> um, she's such a character. And so she's the granddaughter of Kesaburo Koda, who was the founder of the farm. And when you meet Robin, you're just immediately struck by um, her style, her sense of style. Um, she has this really just gorgeous, like mane of long salt and pepper hair that she throws up into this like messy bun. You know, when I met her, on the farm that morning she was wearing this gorgeous you know blue um shirt dress that went down to her ankles and we were like climbing through the fields i was obviously in jeans and she was just so like um just elegantly climbing through the fields in like sandals and this like gorgeous dress we go into her into this little farmhouse just to talk and she was making me kanji and you know, when you walk into the house, you're, you're just immediately also struck by um, just really incredible antique furniture pieces and like, like antique art around the house. So yeah, you just, you really get a sense that like, Robin is sort of like on another tip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So our paternal grandfather, Kesaburo Koda, started farming rice in the late 1910s in the Sacramento Valley, north of Sacramento, which has been traditionally, historically, the stronghold of the rice industry in California dating back to the 1800s. So we started farming rice and my grandfather eventually moved the headquarters of the business down to where we are today, which is about the same latitude as Monterey, but inland off the I-5 in the Central Valley. So it's not, it's, this is definitely not rice farming ground zero for California. We're an oddball, we're kind of south. So Jasmine, you mentioned that you were interested in this, but what brought you to want to learn more about rice and to go make this trip? I I wanted to write about Coda Farms and their and their heirloom variety of organic rice because I'm interested in expanding this notion of terroir, which in its etymology refers literally to the land, is a term that some might associate with exclusive wine production in France, for example, but really it can be used to describe the overall growing conditions or environmental factors of uh, any given region in the world that are then expressed through specific types of crops like grapes um, or other cultivars, and in this case, uh, in grains like rice. And so I 
I wanted to ask whether we could talk about terroir in the U.S. without talking about the history and politics um, of land use in this country, which uh, in the case of Coda Farms and, and their Cocoa Rose heirloom rice, um, those things are inextricably tied. And so, in other words, Cocoa Rose heirloom rice is an expression of the land it was grown on and the political and historical experience and trauma and perseverance of the family who worked that land. And so I think Cocoa Rose for me is just the start of thinking more meaningfully about the origins of food and land use and labor in the U.S. And, you know, I'm a second generation ABC or um, American born Chinese who who was born and raised in the Bay Area. And, you know, my diet has always revolved around rice. And in fact, my ancestors were actually rice farmers and merchants in Hong Kong. But Anyway, I never really gave too much thought about where my rice comes from because it's really just so ubiquitous and so quotidian. And and I think that this is true for most of us. But over the last few years, as I've been like going home and visiting California, I started noticing this really just beautiful name that kept coming up on menus, which was Cocoa Rose. And it's the house rice for these locally and seasonally focused restaurants and that was you know really the first time i had seen rice named so specifically on menus and not only that it's just like really delicious stuff so coda farms they grow a number of things uh, but namely they grow glutinous rice which they use to make mochiko flour which is something that you know if you especially if you're Asian American growing up on the West Coast, it's probably something that was in your pantry. Mm-hmm. Um, they also grow this really incredible variety of heirloom grain rice, which is what I was interested in learning more about, um, called Cocoa Rose. So one of the things my grandfather liked to do was he had an artistic side and considered himself somewhat of a creative type and what he did was create he wanted to create trademarks brands for his own products so after the war he wanted to grow a strain of rice that was proprietary so to that end he brought in one of the preeminent rice breeders in the country that at that time a gentleman named Hughes Williams and Hughes Williams was unusual in that obviously he was Caucasian and he was willing to come work for our family here in California. I mean there was still so much strong anti-Asian sentiment that that was that was really unusual. So Hughes Williams came here and in the course of approximately 10 years, bred and kept crossbreeding and crossbreeding and created a modern cultivar, which was very, very, to us, good tasting and has a beautiful aroma, good cooking qualities, and was just, you know, we thought a winner. So for instance, people like know the Nomer Calrose. Calrose is just, it, does, it refers to a type of very generic, high yielding, fast maturing, sort of bland, medium grain. Cocoa Rose was essentially a premium medium grain, meaning it tasted better. It just, it has better appearance, better cooking qualities, just a better grain altogether. 
We have primarily specialized in Japanese style rice or japonica. Japonica being the classification that covers short grain to medium grain, sticky glutinous rices. So we do cocoa rose, which is a medium grain, premium medium grain that is a table rice, what we would use essentially for sushi or your everyday rice. So cocoa rose is not a high yield crop. No, I mean, well, back in the back in the 1950s, and by the time it was commercially introduced by the early 1960s, I think 62 formally. At that time, it would have been considered a modern cultivar, but by today's standards, it's it's certainly not what our family is going to retire on. The fact of the matter is that rice breeding drivers in the U.S. for so long have been oriented to prioritize just literally high yield, fast growing cultivars that all the characteristics of a good eating rice have literally dissipated to the point where rice in the U.S. now is just largely thought of as a bland commodity, something we slop something else on top of. Rice has lost its own merits. So what we have preserved here, what we believe, is a rice that has outstanding characteristics and stands on its own, just as simply a good eating rice. For us, it literally is a tie to our past. It's a tie to our grandfather, who my brother and I were too young to interact with or know personally. But of course, his history, his work, all of what he achieved is surrounds us here on a daily basis. We were both raised here on the farm and it, the, the reminders are around you literally every single day. So for what we feel, that obligation, that sense of legacy, that sense of debt, we, we will never stop growing Cocoa Rose. Okay, so let's talk more specifically about this legacy that Robin is referring to. A big part of her family's story is about resiliency, but what they were responding to is an equally important thing to interrogate. Yeah, uh, so it was really interesting for me to, as I mentioned, to kind of start to learn about this rice because it was really an entryway into learning more about agricultural history in the United States. And so what I began to piece together in learning more about Coda Farms um, was more broadly uh, the fundamental role of uh, Asian Americans and more specifically Japanese American farmers and laborers um, on the development of agriculture in the U.S. And so as we dip into this, and I think that some people are familiar with this history, especially if you grew up on the West Coast, but, you know, there was a lot of racial resentment from white folks and you know we really see that kind of that racial resentment just ratified through racist policies like the chinese exclusion act or the alien land law act um, to name a few and then during world war ii through the imprisonment of japanese americans in concentration camps across the united states and i think most of us are familiar with this history um, but what we often miss are the sort of economic motivations and material consequences. Mm. And there's a really great piece by Gwen Guilford that goes into 
what was essentially the stripping and selling of land and property from Japanese American farmers um, during World War II and the effects that this mass incarceration had on the food supply uh, in the United States during that time. Mm. And so the Kota family, who had seen a lot of success growing and selling rice, are just one example of this history. Wow. So Jasmine, I know that Kaisaburo was a skilled farmer, but prior to his generation of immigrants, what was the history and the origins of Asian rice in the U.S.? You know, as it pertains to the story, how, how did rice like end up on the West Coast? And, you know, it came because of Chinese laborers who were working on the railroad in the 19th century. And it's interesting because the variety of rice that we see coming out of California, which the bulk of it is Japonica, it's not the kind of rice that the Chinese were eating um, or eat to this day, speaking geographically of the rice that's that comes from um, mostly southern China. The irony of the rice industry in California is historically the roots are based in the Chinese laborers who built our railways. For the most part, rice was very expensive and had to be all imported in from the from Asia to California to feed these labor forces. So, of course, I mean, they were looking for ways to economize. So one of those was to start growing rice here in California, not having to, like, buy it from Asia and ship it across the Pacific. So literally cost-cutting. So, ironically, what's being grown in California is Japonica, Japanese-style rice for in the 1800s for the Chinese rail workers. And, you know, between you and I, since you're of Chinese descent and I'm of Japanese descent, Chinese and Japanese do not eat the same type of rice for their table rice. So the Japanese rail, I mean, the Chinese rail workers are being fed Japonica, which is just a short grain to medium grain rice. It's a lot more sticky than what Chinese typically think of as table rice, which yeah. is long grain, lower starch, more dry, more fluffy rice. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's where those roots started. And to this day, California still grows predominantly Japanese-style rice, whereas the rest of the country grows predominantly long grain. There is more short grain and more medium grain being grown in other areas in this current day and age. But historically, that's the way it's been. So as most Asian Americans, especially on the West Coast, are keenly aware of what is known as the alien land laws, which were formalized in 1913. And because of very strong anti-Asian sentiments, that meant that Asians really were very much prejudiced against and all kinds of daily going-ons, and that included land holdings. So the alien land law essentially had a short-lived loophole where Asians could buy land in the name of their American-born children. So that loophole, my grandfather took advantage of that, started looking for land up in the area where he was lease farm, leasehold farming, which was north of Sacramento, and because that land was very desirable and people would not sell to him. So our grandfather settled down here, bought land, and just started to put down his roots, which included building a mill and all the processing 
to be vertically integrated so he could handle his, his product from start to finish. Could you tell me about um, what happened when your family realized that internment was like a done deal and that's where the country was headed? What happened in, in those days um, leading up to that? My grandfather, by the early 1940s in the outbreak of World War II, Ha, was farming approximately 10,000 acres and was very, very successful. And rice being of the cultural importance it is to the Japanese people, it just earned him this nickname of the Rice King. So the family was doing well, relatively affluent for that era. And when the internment was pretty much going to be a done deal, they decided that they wanted to shut down the business and hopefully keep it intact. That did not happen. So that's essentially what he started off to do, but because of, because of the scale of the operation, we suspect that caught the attention of the government. The government literally stepped in and handed them a mandate saying that they had to stay open and operate during their internment to produce fiber. So being interned in Colorado and obviously not being able to manage your business from, from an internment camp, they had to sign over power of attorney to non-Asians. So essentially when that happened, um, the farm was just literally torn apart. Our grandfather, upon his upon their release from the Amachi internment camp in Colorado, they drove nonstop from Colorado back to South Dos Palos to see what had happened to the farm. And when they got here, they found that the homes, the mill, the farming, the processing plant, all of their best equipment, their airplanes, livestock, everything had been sold. So there were there was no recourse back then. You could file you could file for for reparations, and that's what they did. But um, my grandfather did not live to see a dime of that. It dragged on till 1960. Five, he passed away in 1964, and for what it was settled for, it was pennies on the dollar, did not even cover the attorney's fees for having dragged on those many, many years. It was obviously a very terrible experience. That's not to say that that's the only experience that happened, because I've told, as I've said many times, my mother's side of the family, she was born and raised in the Bay Area, and they had a very good rosary, rose nursery business. They had a German-American friend who took care of that business for him, kept it intact, managed it through the war, handed them the keys when they came back from the internment camps. So not everybody had the experience that my grandfather had. But we, again, suspect it's because they were just too large and too successful and drew too much attention to themselves. So after the war and after finding everything decimated, my grandfather, what does he do? He sets up shop quarter mile down the road, digs in his hill, builds a new mill, and starts all over again. It was also interesting, like, to see Robin in this place and to talk with her about 
like what it means to grow up and still live on the farm. She lives there with her 92-year-old mother. So there are these like constant reminders of what happened to her family and just this incredible sense of grit and perseverance that her grandfather had to to just like return to this place after they were um, imprisoned and to like, you know, rebuild again. You have been amazing, as always. Thank you so much, Jasmine. I really appreciate your uh, reporting and you sharing the story with us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Of course. See you soon. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You've been listening to Point of Origin, a podcast about the world of food worldwide. Today on Point of Origin, rice and resilience, Asia to California, Africa to South Carolina. You just heard a very moving account of the story of the Coda family farm and Robin Coda, who is continuing her grandfather's incredible legacy of perseverance. You know, this story, as Jasmine said, is one that many of us know parts of, but to hear it in such personal testimony and such personal detail in Robin's own words really just gives you a sense of how recent these atrocities were. And there's certainly no service in suppressing the details, but we also want to recognize that it is a difficult story to tell. So we are very grateful to Robin 
and Jasmine and their generosity in sharing this story. Thanks to you both. We're picking up in the low country of South Carolina, where in Charleston, we learned that rice wasn't just an integral part of the culture, it was the culture. BJ Dennis, the chef and scholar on Gullah Geechee Foodways, joins us to discuss the regional history and distinct culture of the descendants of West Africa's rice coast. You know, I came up as a dishwasher here in Charleston. You know, um, went to college for one year, had too much fun. Parents was like, yo, you're not staying here for free anymore. You, um, long story short, I started working in kitchens and I went to trade school for business. Found out that I eventually, a uh, semester later, started taking culinary, went from dishwasher, busboy to line cook, and, you know, just kind of took off from there. 2004, I left Charleston to move to St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands because my neighbors from in Charleston were from there. That was my connection there. That's when it really hit me. Um, they really would talk to me about us here and in, 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 as a Gullah Geechee culture. Um, people from Jamaica, I mean, Haiti, St. Lucia, you know, individuals knew about this culture here. So that was eye opener for me. And the fact that the, the culture was unapologetic in the West Indies. So I came back to Charleston in 2008, started working. Um, that was when there was the creme de la creme in Charleston, where Sean with Brock was just taking off. You couldn't get a job in the city then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started, uh, I was the PM kitchen manager at what is now the busiest restaurant in the city and ca- called Fleet Landing, which is one of the classic seafood houses here, which ironically enough is how I started off my career as a dishwasher in the seafood houses of Charleston. I wanted to go and do the, you know, the French thing, the creme de la creme. At the same time, when all our French stuff I was learning through school, all the cookbooks that I ever would grab, when I go to the store, I would go to like Barnes and Nobles. I was always searching for West African or West Indian foodways, the diaspora foodways. And I started working in restaurants throughout Charleston. Pop-up scene started hitting around 2012, 2013, and the brothers started doing representing the culture. So I was like, you know, we got some great black-owned restaurants in the city, but you know, in my opinion, there's nobody who's doing it in the purest form. Mm-hmm. You know, say the purest form from land from the sea, seasonal. You know, I, you know, I'm not talking about the mac and cheese and the canned string beans and the canned beans. I'm talking about the heirloom varieties that were a part of our culture that I was seeing being played around in these high-end kitchens in Charleston. So, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to see the Carolina gold rice back, wanting to see these things back. So, uh, you know, the seasonality, you know, the, the okra, the 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 varietals of okra and peas back into the restaurant. So I started doing the pop-ups, the Galagichi pop-ups. And at the same time, started to transition myself into wanting to be fully independent. So this is like 2013. I would give people my card and say, I'm also a caterer. So you want to taste this food, you can hire me for a wedding, you can hire me for a house party, whatever. But that was clever. From there, it just took off and it evolved into what it is now, which is more than food. It's history it's cultural it's uh connecting the dots to the diaspora through food so i guess that's the long short version that's a a good version while you were in process obviously you were garnering a lot of inspiration as many chefs do uh from the french style of cooking since that's what the culinary education is really rooted on 
um, and most of the the Western world at least. What were you researching uh, to help deepen your knowledge about uh, the seasonal cuisine of uh, the diaspora and specifically of the African American people of the Low Country? Well, first of all, I've always been a big lover of the African the, the African diaspora, the story in general. You know, coming from Charleston, you know, with the deep Gullah Geechee roots here, um, and don't get it twisted, the majority of us don't even halfway understand our roots. Mm-hmm. That's why I do what I do, partly also. But I was I came from a family, my mother and father, they gave me books from like 14, 15. I mean, I read Marcus Garvey. Um, I just it's just like research, man. I mean, studying and sitting with elders. My grandfather, when he was here, who he's now an ancestor. He passed away three years ago. He was a he was a he he fish. We call him a netter, man. I mean, we can't, I never ate the big shrimp. I never ate big grouper and snappers. I mean, we got what we got in the creeks: small shark, uh, catfish, croaker, white. So when I grew up with a father who fished, he hunted when he needed to, and he farmed. And growing vegetables was his favorite thing. So I would sit with him and talk about the old ways, you know, especially what I could get out of him, you know, at 82, 83. And he passed away at 89. But, you know, his, he was getting up there. But I would ask him. And he'd talk about the rice culture. And he would talk about rice eating. And he would also bring it down to me and say, we didn't eat rice every day. You know, we had these different grains. And so this it's, it's still the evolving thing for me. But he talked about the rice pond they had. Man, brother, that's a beautiful question that is so complex. (laughs) And still in process, right? I mean, you're still uh, very much as much of a student um, as you are a teacher, as is often the case. So I want to talk more about the the rice as it relates to Gullah culture. Can you explain who they are, rather, as well as what the role of rice played in the, the development of that community? Well, Gullah people will be situated on the coast of Charleston and the coast of South Carolina, uh, Charleston. Charleston basically a peninsula in the middle of all these sea islands. And, you know, it runs from, you know, Wilmington, North Carolina, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida. So us here still on the coast, obviously the knowledge of rice, Charleston was known for rice. I mean, you can see it to this day, there's uh, folks who are still living really well off the knowledge of the enslaved Africans on the coast of South Carolina, known as the Gullah people. Because of isolation during that time, um, we were able to help hold on to a lot of the language that came from West Africa. So it was in its truest form, it's a pure West African language of different ethnic tribal groups that came together. You don't hear rarely, there's anybody who rarely speaks pure Gullah anymore, but you hear in the everyday vernacular words like Baba. But Baba is Gullah for boy boy. Kumbaya. Kumbaya was singing the fields as a way to sing to your ancestors to come back in. Not, you know, we see today is like this whole enhanced thing, but Kumbaya was a Gullah word also. Come by here. Come yeah. We say, we'd we be like, come yeah, look yeah, boy. What you, what you doing out your boy? That's that Geechee talk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the Geechee talk right there. Okay. The slippery tongue. Gullah in its purest form. Gala was an English based, is an English based Creole. Still spoken by a few people. Like, I mean, we say certain words. Kuda. Kuda means turtle. Hananam. Hananam is um, you and them. You and them. Gala was, the abolitionists came down here and said, yo, y'all got to stop talking like that. So, this, you talking about a language that's been since after the Civil War. Funny enough, 
being isolated here in the South, uh, after the Civil War is when the language started to die. Abolitionists came from the North, and they didn't understand. I mean, my grandfather, them, you told my grandfather, my grandmother, and he said he was Geechee for sure. But you say to them they were Geechee or Gullah, that was a fight. Ignorance. You couldn't. You didn't know how to speak. And that was only even amongst black people from other parts of the South. Oh, there's them Gichi people. The Gullah people have held on. We have held on to more of our Africanisms than any other African American culture in the United States. So there's this, these these parallelisms that exist with the Gullah culture. And obviously, we we had the knowledge of growing rice. That's why we are called rice eaters. You say them Gichi people to eat rice. All day long, I will say this because research gets deep. When you talk to the elders, we didn't eat rice every day. Rice was a crop that you grew. You know, we've forgotten about the sorghum, we've forgotten about millet, we've even forgotten about fonio green, which is now being talked about. That was documented, being grown by Gullah people here. But rice is important because rice kind of unifies us across the diaspora. And rice made this city rich, and we are known for our rice culture. People were growing rice up to the 1970s, man, up here. Honestly, I've talked to elders say, yeah, we had rice ponds in our backyard up in the late to the late 70s, first part of the 1980s. So rice is important, yes. My grandfather them had a rice pond when he was a kid. Now, because we have accessibility, we have accessibility to bad rice, which is also another issue. Because if we get back to growing our rice, when you pound out rice, and the first pounding and you, and, you, and, you, and you clean it and stuff, you still got that good brand on it. Mm-hmm. You really see that as like hand harvested. That's the rice that our, and our ancestors would have been eating. So now that we're, we have this tag on us, this rice eating people, we're eating the wrong rice, we're eating the bad rice. How is it that the Gullah people have uh, managed to maintain such a strong cultural identity and such a strong cultural connection to the continent. You know, we still, still had the isolation. I think heavy isolation up to maybe the 50s. You know, then you had uh, like Hilton Head start to be in the eyes of developers. and So we still held on and people still spoke Gala. And, he, and people still speak it. I mean, it's very rare. The isolation was key. And I think by after the Civil War, by that time you had a culture that was pretty much set firm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tell people all the time, you come to Charleston and unfortunately, sometimes our gatekeepers are, are people who are the most impoverished. Mm. We don't look at it like that because because of, of poverty and not being able to get the luxuries of what we have over here, especially those who are impoverished on the, in, in, the, in, the, in the, we call the countryside. They, they have to hold on to a lot of roots. Survival if that makes sense, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I see a dish like smoked herring and rice. You really don't see that, you know, nobody who, who got a lot of money or eating you know, or can buy this and that unless they're nostalgic for it. Yeah, it's interesting that the isolation, in a way, is kind of what was able to, to save the culture. You were You're just about to... Um, start talking about food, and I want you to do more of that. So can you say uh, in your own work uh, some dishes that you've used to to kind of showcase the role of rice um, in the cuisine? Oh, yeah, man. Perlows. Perlows, yes. You know, some people will call it pilau. 
We say Perlo. We spell it 18 million different ways. Everybody knows Hop and John. Cow peas and rice. You know, a lot of people say black eyed peas, but down here, nah. You around here, you talk to Galagichi is Hop and John is our dish. Let's not get it twisted. And it's becoming infamous around for black folks. Hop and John is a Galagichi originated dish. Let me, and let me rephrase that. Because peas and rice is that one dish that connects us throughout the diaspora. Peas and rice in Jamaica, peas and rice in West Africa. Um, but yeah, Hop and John, uh, chicken rice, uh, okra rice, which is Limp and Susan, food folklore here in the low country that is the wife of Hop and John. Okay. Um, I mean, if you want to be truthful, like, okay, or red rice, red rice, which is the cousin, daughter, sister of Jalof, mm-hmm. which is in the same family, red rice in the same family with Jambalaya in New Orleans, Louisiana. You know, we, we, rice, crab rice, you know, mm. rice, you know, was the backdrop for a lot of a lot of dishes. And I'll be honest, in the colonial period, it was the backdrop. You see it in so many colonial cookbooks because it was truly an elitist food. Mm-hmm. If you, you look at all the colonial cookbooks in the low country of South Carolina written through the lens of a European housewife. But she was writing that through the lens of what her enslaved African cooks was doing. Yeah. So you see dishes, and then you see the you then you see the English French influence in certain dishes, like we call rice pie here, which is basically a rice casserole dish. So then that's when you start to see the little bit of European influence into these rice dishes. But it would have been the the enslaved African hand in the pot that was giving it the seasoning, that was giving it the flair. And you are obviously still preparing a lot of these dishes. Um... So I want to talk to you about catering um, because that is probably outside of an event or something. I imagine the best way for people to try your food. So I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, the the work that you're doing and some of your go-tos as a caterer. But also, can you tell us about the relationship between these African hands that you speak of and catering in a historical context and how, um, you know, catering has always been a place of, of refuge and uh, occupation for African American people. Yeah, man, you, this, that's a, that's a great question. You know, here in Charleston, <clears throat> you can ride around and, and there's certain buildings I can point out and be like, that used to be a black owned hotel. And I'm talking about 1780 something. Mm. Wow. That was a black owned, that was a black couple owned restaurant from circa 18, 20, 30, da, 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 da. The role of food is so powerful, even during the time that our people were going through hell. Because, see, in the city of Charleston, there was no plantations in the city. There was one, Lounge Grove. But other than that, everybody who was here was either, you know, you were a butler, caterer, uh, house cook. And then there you had your free people who owned restaurants who were caterers. Black caterers in the colonial period, they were some of those who were in were in spaces that a lot of us couldn't get into. Some of those who were able to build spaces for us back then, privately that we weren't able to get into in other places. They were prominent in societies. And it's just amazing. I mean, catering catering is huge for us. It's always, always has been. It, it, catering was how we got into owning our restaurants back then. You know, you see the documents of the famed caterer, Nat Fuller, who 
was a famous caterer here in Charleston, the most famous chef in Charleston from 1850 to 1860 after the Civil War. His restaurant, The Bachelor's Retreat, fame, fame celebrated caterer, Nat Fuller. Always there was that catering because that's how we usually got our start. And sometimes it might have been funded by the person who enslaved you and who took their he or she's percentage from you. But you still had some, I'm going to just say the word freedom, but limited lead way, you know what I'm saying, and doing things. And some people had their outright freedom knowing their own buildings, but catering was always huge for us, huge for us. And that's what I do now. I'm, I, I, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I, I'm I'm working to get to the point of getting into the restaurant. We're looking at real estate right now to open up a grab-and-go studio kitchen vibe. You know, I, we talked about it a little bit off the phone. But, yeah, I'm a caterer. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. And it's allowed me to travel. It's allowed me to do the research I need to be done. It's allowed me to cook across the country. I mean, I've I been to Montreal and Toronto cooking. You know, I've been to Benin and West Africa cooking. You know, it's 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 beautiful, man, and it's a part of our heritage that's been strong. Mm. I mean, because from the catering came the restaurant, the restaurant tours. So, yeah, man, it's 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 what I do. Um, you know, like I said, we all we are in, in the talks of looking for some buildings, but it's going to be an expansion of the catering company. Um, and catering has kept a lot of black people. A lot of us, our pockets nice, um, and it's and it's it's been like that for 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 a while for decades. Well, I am God, so glad that you are doing the work that you're doing. I'm really glad that you're able to fully show up to this legacy of proudly working as a black caterer, and that you are finding your own version of liberation in that work. And uh, I would be very happy for your brick and mortar project to get off the ground, as I'm sure it will. But um, even the work that you've already done has just been incredible. So I thank you for that, Brother BJ Dennis, uh, big fan, like I said. So thank you so much for taking time to uh, tell us more about your work and also the history of rice and the Gullah people in South Carolina. Oh man, thank you, brother. And, uh, thank you for the work that you do too. Um, giving us a voice, a platform to speak and look forward to connecting in the physical form soon, you know, That's outside right. of media. But um, it, was, it was great, man. Thank you for having me, for sure. Of course, we'll do it again soon, man. chef bj dennis giving us that geechee talk i could talk to that man all day long i love his voice i love his spirit and i love all of his work if you're on instagram y'all should follow bj the geechee gourmand at chef bj dennis appreciate you for coming on chef
that's it for this episode. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. I hope you've enjoyed today's very special episode on rice. We'd like to thank our guests for making it possible, chef and writer Jasmine Lee, chef BJ Dennis, and thanks to all of you for supporting Whetstone and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. For all of the latest on all things Point of Origin, you can follow us on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. We'll see you next week at the Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.